This is The Drunk Projectionist. Today, we're on the streets of New York discussing Midnight Cowboy with author Glenn Frankel. Dustin Hoffman always took full credit for inventing that moment. He said that uh, no one expected the cab to be coming into the crosswalk. That's not exactly true, Frankel says. Dustin's version is great, except when you go back and look at Waldo's Salt script beginning in the fall of 1967, like eight months before its film, there's a taxi cab jumping into the crosswalk. The taxi cab nearly bumping Dustin Hoffman's Razzo Rizzo was already in the script. Hoffman didn't come up with that moment. He did, however, come up with the I'm walking here line. Frankel has more on that and lots of other behind the scenes insights on the making of Midnight Cowboy. The Dustin Hoffman John Voight movie was directed by John Schlesinger and based on a novel by James Leo Herlihy. Both Schlesinger and Herlihy were gay, but they were careful about treading too explicitly on the subject of gay sexuality. It was, after all, the 1960s. Before Stonewall and before the American Psychiatric Association stopped referring to homosexuality as a disease. A lot of psychoanalysts were practicing conversion therapy techniques. Conversion therapy wasn't invented in some Baptist church in Arkansas or somewhere. It was, in, it was really invented in New York by the Freudians. Midnight Cowboy, today on The Drunk Projectionist. I'm Todd Milton. My name is Glenn Frankel, and I'm the author of Shooting Midnight Cowboy, Art, Sex, Loneliness, Liberation, and the Making of a Dark Classic. So tell me about the first time you saw the movie Midnight Cowboy. Oh gosh, I think I first saw it in 1969 in the summer of 69 in New York. I was finishing up my sophomore year at Columbia University. I was in New York myself and, you know, a young guy, uh, a young, lonely guy walking the streets of New York because I didn't have enough money to do anything else. And the movie, you know, connected with me for a number of reasons, partly because it's, it's so steeped in New York of that time. Uh, and because it's it's it, it tries to, do, you know, it, it's based in Times Square and Times Square was a place where I wandered around mostly to go to double features. You could go to double features for 50 or 75 cents in Times Square. I remember seeing the Wild Bunch down there and, and Woodstock, the documentary, um, you know, was playing on the east side for three bucks and playing in Times Square for 75 cents. So I related to all that part of it. Uh, and also to the great Dustin Hoffman, who had become a sort of iconic counterculture figure with The Graduate, his first movie, which came out in 67. And here he was two years later uh, doing an entirely different role, doing it beautifully, showing that he could be a real actor, not just, you know, a sort of leading man, celebrity guy. He looked short. He had a large nose. He looked a lot like me and my cohort of people in New York. So for all those reasons, I found the movie very attractive and it stuck with me then and it's stuck with me ever since. 
So when you went into the movie theater and you saw Dustin Hoffman's name first before anybody else's name, were you thinking this was going to be a Dustin Hoffman movie? Yeah, of course it was going to be a Dustin Hoffman movie. I mean, there he was, you know, uh, on the movie poster, and there he was first in the title, and this guy John Voight or Veet or whatever his name was, you know, I'd never heard of him, and nobody else had too, except for some uh, cognoscente of off-off-Broadway or people who'd watched, I don't know, uh, Naked City uh, reruns on TV. But this turned out to be John Voight's movie, uh, and Dustin Hoffman didn't come on till like the 25th uh, minute of the movie. But by the 25th minute of the movie, I was all, already captivated by Joe Buck, the character Voight plays. So for me, it wasn't a problem. Turned out it was a bit of a problem for Dustin himself for a while there. He wasn't too pleased about that. Terrific shirt. Are you speaking to me? Well, I was just admiring that colossal shirt. I mean, that is one hell of a shirt. I bet you paid a pretty price for it, am I right? Oh, I ain't cheap. Yeah, birds. I say it's all right, shirts. I like birds. I don't like to have a lot of, you know, cheap stuff on my back. Sure. Hi, cowboy. Got a cigarette? You write, (laughs) it was as if he finally came to understand that the name of the movie was Midnight Cowboy, not Midnight Ratso. Yeah, that's a very cruel sentence. Um, (laughs) There's some truth to it. He wanted this part. He wanted to show that he was a character actor. He wanted to show that he just wasn't a a pretty boy or a semi-pretty boy, you know, movie star. Remember, both these guys and a number of their, their contemporaries all came up, you know, going to acting school in New York, working off off Broadway, developing their craft and their art. They were serious actors with a capital S. They had no idea that they'd ever get into the movies or go to Hollywood. I mean, Dustin Hoffman did not look like Cary Grant or Robert Redford or anyone like that. So this was a big shock to his system, if you will, to become a, a, a suddenly a big time, not only a big time movie star because of The Graduate, but a kind of counterculture icon. The Graduate is a generation gap movie, and it comes down on the younger side of that gap. Um, Hoffman had already campaigned for Gene McCarthy, uh, running, who was running for president on the Democratic, trying to get on the Democratic ticket in 1968. So Hoffman was not just some sort of new great, you know, actor who it was surprising to see somebody so ethnic looking be so successful, but he also had the right things to say politically. And here he is, you know, coming in on this role, looking grizzled, looking so different. That just sort of sunk in the idea that he, you know, was somebody special that we could relate to as somebody out of the mainstream, but someone very, very appealing. Let's talk about the gestation of the movie, about the novel first that's written by James Herlihy and how the director and the producer became aware of the novel and why they wanted to make it into a movie. Well, James Leo Herlihy is uh, a young guy. He, he's uh, born in 1927 in Detroit. Uh, to a working-class Irish Catholic family, wants to be a writer, again, with a capital W, wants to be a novelist, wants to be an artist, makes his way to a little arts college in North Carolina where he spends a year working on his craft, goes to to the Pasadena Playhouse, which was 
an active learning center where he studies acting and playwriting. He's a handsome guy. He's an exuberant gay man in his private life, though, of course, like everyone else, virtually in that time, he's not out of the closet in the 40s and 50s. Ends up coming to New York, as so many people do, on the bus, you know, seeking to make a life for himself. And he's he's relatively successful. He's got a play on Broadway by the uh, mid to late 1950s. He's got a novel that's uh, called All Fall Down, his first novel, which does fairly well and is made into a not very good, but interesting Hollywood film. He's spending a lot of time in Times Square. As I said, he's exuberant in his um, uh, sexuality. He's meeting people. He's obviously exploring things down there. And, um, and he comes back with this novel about a young cowboy. Well, he's not a cowboy, a young Texan, a very lonely figure who comes and buys a cowboy outfit and comes up on the Greyhound to New York seeking to make his own future out of being, you know, uh, a male hustler. Doesn't do very well, doesn't get a lot of attention, a lot less than Jim's first book. But it does come to the attention of, of certain people in the gay community and included as a man uh, who, about Jim's age, but who, who's a Brit. His name is John Schlesinger. He's also an exuberant gay man in his private life. He's a movie maker. He comes up through the BBC TV documentary system. He starts making movies in the early 60s, uh, feature length movies. He makes a kind of loving set in the north of England, which is a very interesting, uh, lovely film about working class people trying to get ahead in life. Then Billy Liar, which is a sort of interesting satirical comedy. Then John gets to, Schlesinger gets to London and makes Darling. And that's a real breakthrough film for him. It's set in swinging London. Julie Christie is the star, her first starring role about, you know, the sort of craziness of that era. It's a bit of a satire, a bit of a comedy, but also a rather acid um, commentary on, on life and on getting ahead. And Julie Christie is so good in that movie, so charismatic that she actually is nominated for and wins the Best Actress Oscar in 1965. So suddenly John Schlesinger's hot stuff and Hollywood is beckoning and he he comes to town and he, but he's discovered, you know, he's been handed this little novel and he finds the little novel really fascinating. So, 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 somebody, of, so somebody at UA handed him the novel. Well, no, originally a friend, an American friend in London gives it to him, a guy named uh, Kay Fawcett, who's still around, incidentally, who became very big, uh, in fabrics and in, and in design art. And Coffee Fawcett gives him the original copy. At first, John reads a few pages and it doesn't grab him, but he goes back to it a few weeks later and he begins to see things there that he can do. Again, this whole thing, why do people come to New York? They come to New York to find their future, to, to be somebody, to be special. And that, that speaks to John. And this lonely guy from Texas who forms a very fragile friendship with this Bronx con man named Ratso Rizzo, <laughs> the Dustin Hoffman character. Right, right. This connection that's gradually formed really spoke to John Schlesinger. Well, you want me to stay here tonight? That's the idea, ain't it? Look, I'm not forcing you. I mean, like, uh, who's forcing you? Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. I truly am. I must have got the wrong impression then. Okay. Okay, boy. Look, I want you to stay, all right? I mean, I goddamn invited you, didn't I? Well, I hope you know what you're in for. I'm a truly dangerous person, I am. If some, someone does me bad like you, I swear, 
If I'd have caught up with you that night, there would have been one dead wrestle along by now. You understand me. You hear? He's been heading around the streets of New York trying to make a living. First, he thinks he's going to be servicing uh, older women, affluent women whose husbands are not satisfying them sexually. But it turns out that's not a very good business model for Times Square. There aren't any older women, you know, rich women looking for street hustlers. Uh, pardon me, ma'am. Uh, I'm brand spanking new in this here town. I was, uh, I was hoping to get a look at Statue of Liberty. Huh? Hoping I got a look at what? Uh, Statue of Liberty. It's up in Central Park taking a leak. If you hurry up, you'll catch the supper show. What there are are gay men uh, looking for street hustlers. And Joe finally ends up servicing a few. And one of the ones he picks up is a, a lonely sort of introverted uh, salesman, well, very talkative salesman, played by the great Bernard Hughes. This is my first night in town. I consider it a privilege of you to have dinner with me anywhere you say. There's a little French restaurant not too far from here. Italian restaurant? Does that appeal to you? Don't worry about how you're dressed. They know me. Besides, I'll tell him you're, you're with a rodeo. There's always a rodeo in town, damn it. Joe Buck is a sympathetic figure in many ways, but also a dangerous figure. He keeps saying during the movie, you know, I, I, you know, I, I could kill somebody. I've got that in me, and people don't believe him. What you got me up here for? Toward the end of the movie, there's a very ugly scene where he beats a, a gay customer nearly to death or perhaps kills him. We don't really know. I gotta have $57. I simply don't have it, Joe. I got family, goddammit. You're wasting your time, Joe. There's nothing in here. Get out of my way, please, sir. Get out of my way! No, no, no. Don't let go of that table, please. No, you. No, no, please, sir. No, no, no. Don't. No, no, no. Oh, I deserve that. I brought this on myself. I know I did. My nose is bleeding. Now, you gonna let go of that table? Now, you let go of that table, you want to bust a skull. That scene's in the novel, but even the novelist didn't think it should be in the movie. Thought it was just too raw and too ugly, you know, when you see it on the screen. Um, but John Schlesinger, and I should add Waldo Salt as well, insisted that it stay in because it revealed the damage that had been done to Joe by, in New York City over this course of time. It also, it just, it just felt right to him and he insisted on it and stayed in. No, no, I wasn't calling anyone. I wasn't calling anyone. I wasn't calling anyone. I wasn't calling so let's talk about gayness in 1968, 1969, when this movie was made and when it came out and um, just how closeted and homophobic society was and how all that rolled into the decisions made by the novelist and the director, both of whom are gay, and their nervousness about portraying gay life, gay sex in this movie. and and about how they knew how far they could go and have it be acceptable, or like how far you thought they were willing to push things. What's your take on all that? Well, remember, we're talking, they're filming this in 1968 in New York. It is a time of great change in popular culture, uh, but homophobia is still the sort of, you know, seeps into the atmosphere, even in liberal New York. I mean, one of the reasons I love doing these kinds of books, Todd, is because I think movies are a great looking glass into the era that they're made in, whether they mean to be or not. And in this case, 
it revealed Midnight Cowboy reveals a lot about the level of homophobia and about the way homosexuality was treated at that time. So, you know, neither Jim Hurley in writing the novel or John Schlesinger in making the movie wanted to be accused of making a gay novel or a gay movie. And why not? Um, because there was just, even in New York, a liberal place where you'd think there'd be a certain amount of empathy for gay people at this stage in the game in the late 60s. But the truth was New York was very much under the sway of sort of conventional psychiatric uh, community. They were the high priests of New York. You know, it's like a bad Woody Allen movie. Everybody with, with money was going, was going to a shrink once a week and sometimes more than that. And the conventional wisdom in, as interpreted by psychoanalysts then was that homosexuality was some kind of mental illness. I mean, it was listed as a mental illness by the American Psychiatric Association. It was classified as one. Somehow it was the product of being with, you know, two strong mothers and weak fathers. And not only that, but it was potentially a, a contagious disease. It's a little bit like COVID-19, that, you know, older homosexuals would recruit younger men and somehow, I don't know, uh, convert them into gay, into being gay. And this was a real thing. In fact, you know, there was a, a lot of psychoanalysts were practicing conversion therapy techniques. Um, conversion therapy wasn't invented in some Baptist church in Arkansas or somewhere. It was, in, it was really invented in New York by the Freudians um, and rather unsuccessful. But it was part of that whole notion that, that homosexuality was a contagious disease. And therefore, if you didn't go to be, you know, to therapy to get converted to becoming, you know, um, straight, there was something wrong with you. There was something perverted about you because you were carrying this thing around with you. So in that kind of climate, you know, um, there were in the sixties, Hollywood's beginning to show some gay characters in movies, but there are always people who end up either killing themselves or going crazy. You know, you've got Shirley MacLaine in the children's hour or hangs herself. She's a, 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 she's a female teacher in a small school and when she's accused of being a lesbian and she does have some lesbian feelings about another teacher, she ends up hanging herself. Um, these, and the advise and consent, a congressman who had a, had a brief gay affair during World War II and now is running for higher office and the affair comes up and it's going to be revealed, he slits his wrists. I mean, that's the only way you could be gay in a movie. Schlesinger wasn't going to do that, but at the same time, he wasn't going, uh, he wasn't going to depict his characters as gay per se. He wasn't going to be any kinder to gay sexuality than to straight sexuality in this movie. As I said earlier, all the sexuality is rather transactional and ugly. Nonetheless, when the movie's completed, United Artists is very, very happy with the seriousness of the film. Um, but, but the head of United Artists, a guy named Arthur Krim, a real sort of pillar of the community, of the arts community, political friend of the Democratic Party, fundraiser, he's nervous about the gay scenes in this movie. And so he goes to a very prestigious uh, psychiatrist in New York at Columbia University Medical School. And, and the guy watches the movie and says, yeah, you know, you're right. I think for like 17 year old boys seeing this movie for the first time, this could be, you know, this could not only is the straight sex looking unattractive, but it may well convince them, you know, 
to become gay. I, I, I personally didn't realize that when I went to see this movie, I was in danger of becoming, you know, I was a very straight young guy that I was, somehow I would be turned gay by watching Midnight Cowboy. But that was the conventional wisdom of the time. The other thing is to set the scene, you have to realize this is the, the, the the old Hollywood production code of censorship has been scrapped because, you know, Hollywood is looking to make more adult movies. It's looking to take advantage, again, trying to reach a sort of baby boomer audience and has put in this rating system that's designed in part to give more freedom to filmmakers like Schlesinger to make darker movies uh, and more adult movies. And so and the ratings board originally saw this movie and rated it R. They, they were uncomfortable with the sex in it, but they thought it was such a serious and well-done movie that it deserved an R. Well, Arthur Krim is worried, and after he gets this analysis from, from Aaron Stern, he rates it X himself. He doesn't tell anybody he's doing, that he's responsible for it, but it comes out as an X-rated movie. People blame the ratings board, saying, oh, the ratings board was so prudish they wouldn't give this movie an R. Well, it, they did give it an R, but it was changed over. And this is a story that I, that I tell in the book that I love because it really tells you a lot about what society was like then and how homosexuality was treated. It's not till 1973 that the American Psychiatric Association removes homosexuality from its list of diseases. So Midnight Cowboy comes out, and as I said, to everyone's surprise, it not only gets great reviews, people aren't surprised by that, but it's great at the box office. It does really, really well. And after it wins Best Picture, the only X-rated movie ever to be nominated for Best Picture, and the only one to ever win Best Picture, United Artists goes back to the ratings board and asks for an R, and they automatically get one. I mean, the ratings board doesn't even discuss it. They say, well, we rated it R before, sure, you know, <laughs> yeah, take so it that, away. Yeah, the X rating and blaming the ratings board for that X rating is one of the, the big uh, myths that you uh, blow up in the book. So the other myth that you bust is the Dustin Hoffman, I'm walking here scene. Uh, tell us what people perceive that to be and what, what it really was. Well, it's early in the movies. You know, Joe Buck has already had his little tryst with Sylvia Miles, and now he's met Ratso Rizzo in a bar. And Ratso's trying to convince him that he, Ratso, can connect him with a really big-time pimp. And they're walking down 6th Avenue while Ratso, you know, hopping along because he's disabled and talking about how he thinks Joe could make 100 bucks a day. And they're crossing this crosswalk when a ta taxi cab jumps, you know, jumping the light almost hits Ratso. Hey, I'm walking here. I'm walking here. Up yours, you son of a bitch. You don't talk me that way. Get out of here. And he slams his hand down and says, I'm walking here. I'm walking here. And that's another great New York moment. It, it, it's so beautifully done, and it shows the sort of spirit of a New Yorker who's not going to take, you know, crap from anyone. And Dustin Hoffman always took full credit for inventing that moment. He said that uh, no one expected the cab to be coming into the crosswalk. And he, he was going to say, we're making a movie here, you know, but he caught himself. He stayed in character and did the I'm walking here part. And it's maybe the most iconic moment in the movie, the one so many people remember. Well, Dustin's version is great, except when you go back and look at Waldo's Salt's script beginning in the fall of 1967, like eight months before its film, there's a taxi cab jumping into the crosswalk. Now, the thing was, there's no dialogue in the script. It's not, I'm walking here, I'm walking here. Ratso just sort of slams down his hand and then flicks off the taxi cab driver with, you know, with his thumb. 
And so what Dustin does is he invents the dialogue. Uh, does he improvise it right on the spot or has he thought it out before he gets to the crosswalk? I don't know. But that's not a renegade taxi cab. That's a cab driven by a, by a crew member. And so, but to, but to give him his due, and, and incidentally, when I interviewed Dustin, he, he performed the scene in, you know, at the, you know, on the conference table. He just slammed his hand down. He loves the scene and he's so good at it. <laughs> I think we have to give him the lines, you know, whether they were improv right in the spot or not, it doesn't matter. They're great lines. He invented them. He used them. And they do come, you know, and since we remember them, I mean, give the man, you know, give the man the credit. Absolutely. Let's talk about editing and uh, the battle between Hugh Robertson and Jim Clark. The real battle is between Hugh Robertson and John Schlesinger. Uh, Robertson was the first African-American to become a member of the union that, of the film editors. He had worked his way up. He's a very smart, uh, proud man, and he's got a temper. And he begins to look at the rushes from Midnight Cowboy, and he doesn't like them. He thinks it's a movie, kind of as he described it, made by a tourist to New York. It's not the real New York. Robertson is a real New Yorker, whereas John Schlesinger's from London. Uh, on the other hand, the movie is designed, as I said earlier, to give you the point of view of Joe Buck, who's a stranger who comes to New York, and it's told in, uh, you know, it's seen in his eyes. So John's not wrong, and for all of us who came to New York from other places, including myself, the movie feels quite comfortable. One of the jobs of a film editor, though, is to get along with the director. You've almost got to be, as people described it to me, you know, a psychologist. And Hugh is not up for the job of being John Schlesinger's psychologist. And John is not working well with Hugh. There's a lot of dope being smoked in the editing room. It's being, Hugh's offices are in the, the famous old Brill building down on 47th Street, which is, you know, where all that wonderful music was made. It's a great setup. John's getting fed up. And also reels are going missing. He's especially worried about the beginning of the movie. John before had worked in London with a guy named Jim Clark, who was a master film editor and a guy who knew how to humor John Schlesinger. When John would go into one of his fits of despair about, oh, we're making crap here. No one will ever see this. Jim, how can you save me? Jim would, you know, baby John along. So they get John and Jerry Hellman sneak Jim Clark into the country. He's not allowed to work as a film editor in New York. He, you know, he doesn't have a union card. So they make him a, a specialist, you know, associate to the director, you know, or some creative associate. Creative consultant, I think. Creative consultant. Yeah, yes. That's a great word. We're all creative consultants now, <laughs> uh, in life itself. But anyway, he comes in and... Uh, he doesn't agree with John that the movie is that Hugh's doing a crappy job, but he does see that Hugh's having a lot of trouble with the opening scenes of the movie, and especially the bus ride trip where Joe Buck goes from Texas to New York, and which is supposed to include these sort of flash cut scenes, memory scenes of things that have happened to Joe during his childhood. You know, the novel originally is half set in Texas and half in New York. That would have been a four hour movie. So they, they only begin the movie with the bus ride, basically, to New York, but they want to work in these things. And, and Jim is really good at figuring that out. He uses the everybody's talking song, you know, to cut, you know, for the rhythm of the thing. He puts together a very coherent bus ride opening scene. He says Hugh Robertson did a fine job on most of the rest of the movie. But if you talk to Jerry Hellman about it, he... You know, he thought it was a disaster. And John, who's given to disasters, thought Hugh Robertson was the ultimate disaster. What is the talent of the film editor that most moviegoers don't understand? 
Well, he's got to be able to st- to find the things in the you know in all that those takes. He's got to be able to find the director's vision and be true to it, and yet not go on too long and not indulge the director, you know, um, his eccentricities. I mean, John Schlesinger filmed everything he could. The, the, the screenplay is full of odds and ends and things, some of which are quite effective when they're blended in, but others go on way too long and way too far. And so a good, a good film editor applies discipline uh, and, and, you know, knows when to, you know, when to shift knows what mise-en-scene is and how to use it, uh, but doesn't ha- the, keeps the camera from being hyper hyperactive, from overdoing it. Jim was very good at calming down the hyperactivity of John Schlesinger's filmmaking at times. And sort of, well, basically, and, and then digging a coherent narrative out of all these bits. And there were so many bits in, in Midnight Cowboys, so many bits of television screens, of, you know, bums on the street, of various things that caught the attention of John Schlesinger and Waldo Salt and Adam Hollander, for that matter, and were filmed. So Jim helps give it coherence. But again, Hugh Robertson did a lot of that work, too. He didn't like Schlesinger. They fought with each other. You know, the idea they loved Jerry and Jim loved the idea. Jerry uh, Hellman and and John Schlesinger loved the fact they were hiring an African-American. But as Jim Clark pointed out, you know, the liberal stage of the civil rights stage of the uh, filming ended quite quickly when he when when Robertson and Schlesinger began to fight every day, tooth and nail over this thing. I want to talk a little bit about uh, the image of the cowboy, both in. Texas cowboy culture and in gay culture and and how Joe Buck maybe didn't realize what he was doing when he was dressing up as a cowboy and who he might be appealing to. Well, Joe Buck has clearly has images of John Wayne in his head and a bit of Paul Newman. There's a there's a poster of HUD in his hotel room. He thinks a cowboy outfit is going to be very appealing to, you know, um, middle aged affluent women in New York, straight women in New York who are going to swoon over him. What he doesn't realize is that, as I say, there, there are no women walking the streets of the, with that kind of demographic. But at the same time, he doesn't seem to understand the gay coding of the cowboy outfit. Uh, there are other cowboys in Times Square when he gets there, and they're gay male hustlers. Schlesinger always denied or didn't want to talk about the, the so-called gay coding of things like the cowboy image. And, and tell, um, tell me about the history of the gay coding as it applies to a cowboy. Like, why was that a thing? Well, because it's masculinity personified. and It's a myth. I mean, the whole cowboy thing is a myth. Um, but it's, it's the masculine man and out on the prairie where there are only other men. There are no women, you know. So sometimes it's, it's, it's trade, what, what gets known as trade uh, on the streets of New York. And trade is often someone who's hyper-masculine, who isn't gay themselves, but who's willing per- to perform gay acts on on other men or have other men perform gay acts on them for money. That's what trade consists of. And the cowboy outfit is a main way of, you know, announcing yourself as trade. And there is a scene in the movie where Ratso Rizzo is saying, this cowboy outfit is crap. In New York, no rich lady with any class at all buys that cowboy crap anymore. They're laughing at you on the street. Ain't nobody laughing at me on the street. On your back, I seen them laughing at you, fella. Oh, what the hell do you know about women anyway? When's the last time you scored, boy? That's a matter I only talk about at confession. We're not talking about me now. 
Well, when's the last time you've been to confession? It's between me and my confessor. And I'll tell you another thing. Frankly, you're beginning to smell. And for a stud in New York, that's a handicap. Well, don't talk to me about clean. I ain't never seen you change your underwear once the whole time I've been here in New York. And that's pretty peculiar behavior. I don't have to do that kind of thing in public. I ain't got no need to expose myself. No, I bet you don't. I bet you ain't never even been laid. How about that? And you're gonna tell me what appeals to women. I know enough to know that that great big dumb cowboy crap of yours don't appeal to nobody except every Jackie on 42nd Street. Joe isn't a real cowboy. This is simply something he's constructed because he thinks it's gonna work and it doesn't work at all. He's proud of his ability to, you know, um, sleep with women, you know, his sexuality. It's the only thing he's good at, he insists. Seems to me Joe isn't actually good at anything and that his sexuality is as confused and as damaged as every other part of his psyche by this terrible childhood he's had and by the way he's been exploited by other people all along. But Joe doesn't want to own up to that. There's a lot of discussion in people looking back in this movie. Were these guys gay? Is Ratso, you know, a closet case? You know, maybe yes, maybe no. Is Joe, do they have a gay relationship? At one point, Dustin Hoffman comes to Schlesinger and says, we got to see these guys in bed together in this apartment, that at least to keep each other warm, but also because that's who they are. And Schlesinger says to him, oh, that's a great idea. We're making this movie that nobody's going to go see already, and you would like to put two main characters in bed together and turn it into a gay movie. Thanks very much. I'll file that away. Schlesinger avoided that kind of thing like the plague. He didn't want it there. Nonetheless, though, the gay coding of a, of a young man in Times Square in a cowboy outfit, walking the streets, being eyed all over, you know, that's you, you can't get more suggestive than that. And plus, the other cowboys were so much more appealing than Joe Buck as a cowboy. <laughs> I mean... Well, there are about five or six cowboys that they film, and those guys, incidentally, are extras. They are people who Schlesinger puts on the street. Uh, but they, you, but know. you know, they like they like they look tougher. They look, you know, more Western. And Joe Buck, he's got the frills on his coat, and his hat isn't really very. It's like a, it's like a a Broadway version of a cowboy hat. It's not like a real deal kind of thing. Well, you know, and this is Ann Roth putting together an outfit that meets the cowboy dimensions and yet tells you something else about Joe. And yes, Joe is a rather feminine version of a cowboy. Um, Schlesinger didn't want to hire Voight at first, not only because of his inexperience, but because he didn't like Voight's look. He, in the novel, the Joe Buck character is dark haired and is more, you know, a sort of sexier, macho looking guy. And, and Voight is not, at least not in this early stage of his career. But I think it works beautifully, partly because Voight's such a good actor and can, you know, give you the vulnerability and the violence inside Joe. Joe's soul can can shift from one to the other, but also because of the look, he's got a yeah, he's got a dimpled chin. He's a he's a pretty boy. So why why do you think Schlesinger went with that pretty boy, more feminine cowboy look? Well, originally he wanted to hire Michael Sarazen, a dark haired, a very handsome French Canadian actor who also had a little bit of a feminine look to him, but was darker, you know, um, and would have been more Schlesinger and appealed more to Schlesinger sexually. But and then in fact they chose Sarazen for the part. Uh, they started uh, Anne Ross started fitting him for costumes, but uh, Sarazen was signed to another studio, and Jerry Hellman said suddenly the other studio wanted more money than they'd agreed to earlier. Um, they had no money to pay Joe Buck. They ended up paying John Voight seventeen thousand dollars for that role, which was small change even in those days. Um, 
they, the other studio wanted at least $50,000 for Saracen. So Jerry said that, you know, he slammed the phone down on the, on the studio guy who said, we want that kind of money. And they started looking at the audition tapes again. And every time they looked at Void, he looked a little better. And they looked at Sarazen and he looked a little worse. And Marion Doherty was pushing for Void. She thought he could give you the depths of this character in a way that Sarazen couldn't. Is there a particular scene of Voight's performance um, that just really, really speaks to you? Well, there are several. I think one of the early ones, though, is about a third of the way in the movie when he's lost his cheap hotel room. He's got virtually no money in his pocket and he's walking the streets trying to figure out what the hell he's going to do to survive. And he comes into this little uh, cafeteria and, you know, a woman sits down with her young son across from him and she's clearly high on something. He's been building himself a ketchup sandwich of a saltine cracker, which he takes from the kid, I believe. He asks, are you going to eat those? And he takes and he builds a little sandwich out of ketchup and he goes to put it in his mouth. He's been watching these two people across from him and she's running this plastic mouse up and down her son's face. And just the expression on, on Voight's face, it's not outright, it's b- bewilderment. Like, what is this? Where am I? Who am I? All of this is summed up without a word of dialogue. And he spills, of course, the ketchup, spills it all over his khaki, you know, cowboy pants. And it's the worst moment in a way. And he does it without a single word of dialogue. But you see it all in his face. Avoid is a very expressive actor. His eye you see it in his eyes. There's so many great movies where the great acting is done with with one's eyes as much as with anything. John Wayne was a master of this too. John Ford always said, the acting really is in the eyes. That's why I made John Wayne a star. And I think that's how John Voigt becomes so important in this movie. It's just the sense of bewilderment solitude i'm not in texas anymore i'm just i'm lost on this dark planet i think it's a wonderful piece of acting We haven't talked about uh, Miami or the trip to Miami or, you know, Ratso's fantasy about what life will be like in, in, in Miami. People won't call him Ratso anymore. They'll think of him as Rico. It's Ratso's dream all along, but it's not Joe Buck's. And this is one of the things when you talk about the nature of this relationship. Each man has his own fantasy, if you will. Joe's is to becoming a successful male hustler with a string of beautiful female clients. Ratzos is to get to Florida and get out from under this terrible New York winter and and perhaps recover his health. And you remember the first time there's a fantasy scene of Ratso in Florida. It's early in the movie. It's not when they're on the bus. He's imagining what Miami could be like. And he also gets to run in the sand. Hoffman and, and, and Boyd running and Ratso without the limp, without anything, beating Joe down the, you know, it's sort of a, it's a flight of freedom, but it's not real. It's never, it can never happen. Uh, it's filmed in really bright color. There you get the Doris Day rom-com colored for a bit. It's rich, infused, you know, images. And it's Ratso also playing, you know, uh, bingo meister for a bunch of wealthy older women.
So each man has his, has his dream and neither dream is realistic. Neither dream can happen. And toward the end, you know, Joe doesn't believe in Florida. He doesn't want to go there. He doesn't think it's going to save Ratso. But Ratso gets so ill, he can't walk anymore. And Joe feels he has no choice. He comes back. It's, it's an ryonic moment. Joe comes back from finally having a tryst with a, a heterosexual, wealthy young woman played by Brenda Vaccaro. And they have a, a tough sex scene. And then she gives him 20 bucks. And not only that, she starts calling some of her friends her wealthy young female friends and offering to, you know, make appointments. She's pimping Joe Buck for him. He comes back to this tenement chat, you know, that, that, it, that he's sharing with Ratso and he gives Ratso a, a paper bag full of medications and things. He's trying to tell Ratso, so long, pal, it's been good to know you, but now I'm finally going to reach my dream. But Ratso's so ill at this point that he's, he's, he's dying and Joe feels he has no choice than to deliver and, uh, Ratso's need to get out of town. And that leads to the terrible scene of the violence with another customer. Joe collects enough money and then they're on the bus to Florida. And Joe's looking for redemption. He realizes he's never going to be a successful male hustler at that point. Hey, you know, Russell, Rico, I mean, I got this damn thing all figured out. When we get to Miami, what I'm going to do is get some sort of job, you know? Because hell, I ain't no kind of hustler. I mean, there must be an easier way of making a living than that. Some sort of outdoors work. What do you think? The movie ends, as you know, on a very ambiguous note. I mean, uh, there's no redemption for Ratso. Yeah, this is do. his last ride. And for Joe, it's not clear to us okay, whether he's going to be able to get to, to forge a normal human existence reaching out to Rico? people on an honest level he throws the cowboy outfit into the trash on the way south Rico? that's a, a, a big moment and he says well i was never very good Rico? cowboy anyway but maybe i can get a real job but we don't know we don't know in the novel and we don't know in the movie what joe's fate is going to be he looks both lonely once ratso is gone he looks both lonely and vulnerable and uncertain that's how the movie ends okay Rico. Rico? Rico? Hey, Rico? Rico? A terrific ending for a movie. It is, and it speaks to John, again, to John Schlesinger's determination not to compromise, not to make Joe Buck a nicer guy than he was in the end, not to give us some great redemption here. You know, this is a real... This is real life. We have to figure out for ourselves, and we'll never know. Jim Hurley, he was not up for writing a sequel to Midnight Cowboy, and John Schlesinger was not up uh, for making one. What that would have been, what, people would ask Jim Hurley, what happened to, to, to Joe Buck after the book ends? And, and Jim would say dozens of different things, all of which were highly creative and had nothing to do with Joe Buck, really. <laughs> He said, Joe came and occupied my brain and then he left. And I don't know what happens to him after he left. Mm. Yeah. I, and, and I love the fact that uh, Dustin Hoffman's first two movies end on a bus and the graduate, <laughs> like they're in the back of the bus and they've made it and you think it's going to be a happy moment. But then both of them have this look of like, oh, my God, what's next on their face? And then, of course, in this movie, he's on his way to redemption, he hopes. 
And of course, he's dead on the bus. He's dead on the bus. And Joe, his his partner, the guy who's trying to rescue him, doesn't know what he's going to do in a way that, that, that you know, they're, they're rather similar. We have no idea what's going to happen to those two young kids and the graduate. I, I would guess nothing terribly good. Mike Nichols once speculated about that. Um, but uh, and that's why he wouldn't make a, a he wouldn't even consider a sequel because it would just end so badly. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. We don't know if there's redemption for Joe Buck. He's committed a terrible deed at that point, And we just don't know. We don't know if he can survive in the world without Ratso or without a partner. What do you think of Joe, Joe Buck's, you know, nearly final thing that he does with Ratso, where he he puts his arm around him after he's dead, after he closes his eyes, he puts his arm around him and he kind of hugs him gently. He hugs him gently. He doesn't really look at him. He sort of looks in the distance a bit and he's looking very, very uncertain. So it's a last sort of futile gesture toward the only person who gave a shit about him. Excuse my language here, but it's a last futile gesture and it leaves Joe unmoored. I mean, he's in a strange land again now. He's committed himself to to trying to reach out more honestly to other people and to try to get back to to or for the first time perhaps have a normal life. It's a very eloquent moment and again without a word of dialogue. The affection of the putting the arm around it's affectionate but futile. This is you know his friend is dead. Uh he's not going to get any help or understanding from Ratso anymore and maybe not from anyone else. Glenn Frankel, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks. Thanks, Todd. I wandered around a bit here and there, but as you can tell, I'm just in love with this movie and with the people who made it. That's Glenn Frankel, author of Shooting Midnight Cowboy, Art, Sex, Loneliness, Liberation, and the Making of a Dark Classic. Okay, folks, nothing to worry about. Just a little illness. We'll be in Miami in just a few minutes. I read the book and I highly recommend it. He goes into deep, deep, deep stuff. Frankel's also written two other books about movies, The Searchers and High Noon. Speaking of books about movies, let me take a sec to tell you about my book. It's called A Lot Can Happen in the Middle of Nowhere, The Untold Story of the Making of Fargo. It's the true story of the Coen Brothers' epic film of murder, mayhem, and malfeasance on the frozen landscapes of Minneapolis and North Dakota offering an inside look into what Roger Ebert called one of the best films I've ever seen. The Fargo book is A Lot Can Happen in the Middle of Nowhere, the untold story of the making of Fargo. You can find out more about the book on my website, toddmelby.com, including dates for an upcoming book tour at cinemas in Dallas, San Francisco, Chicago, Minneapolis, Philadelphia, Denver, and Portland, Oregon. It's going to be great. I'm really looking forward to going to the Texas Theater in Dallas, the Music Box of Chicago. Um, yeah, it's going to be fantastic. Uh, Glenn Frankel's website is glennfrankel.com. And again, the name of his book is Shooting Midnight Cowboy. Thanks for listening. You long little doggie.